0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes author and journalist Mark Haglund to the show for part one of their two-part conversation about his recently published book, Extraordinary Journey, The Lifelong Path of the Transracial Adoptee. Part two will be released on Tuesday, August 31st.
1: Hello, this is Karen Doyle Buckwalter, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am joining you here from Chaddock and eager to introduce my guest for today, who is Mark Hegland. So let me tell you a little bit about Mark. He is an adult Transracial and international adoptee. He was born in South Korea in 1960, and adopted as an infant by white parents of Norwegian and German descent. And he grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's a professional business journalist and lives in Chicago. He has participated in in in-person and online forums around transracial adoption for over 20 years and has spoken publicly about issues around transracial adoption in numerous settings, both in the United States and Europe. He is also involved in co-moderating Facebook groups around transracial adoption now in multiple languages. This spring, and this is what I'm really, really excited about, he published his book, Extraordinary Journey, The Lifelong Path of the Transracial Adoptee. Previously, he was a contributing author to several other books published by teams of adult transracial adoptees, including Outsiders Within, Parenting as Adoptees, and the Unknown Culture Club. He's also written numerous articles on subjects related to transracial adoption. And what I want to add on a personal note is Mark has been an amazing mentor to me about the importance of race and multiple different identities that people have and how that relates to attachment and feeling safe and connected. He's had a lot of patience in educating me about racial issues that are important to understand in transracial adoption, and I'm really greatly indebted to him. If we have any parents listening today, I would really recommend you check out The group that he helped to um, found Transracial Adoption Perspectives, which is a Facebook group, particularly geared towards parents who have adopted transracially. So I know you're going to really enjoy this interview, even if you're not involved specifically in adoption Mark is so articulate and inspiring that I know you will enjoy this interview regardless of your involvement with that particular issue. So he will be coming right up. So Mark, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed today on the Attachment Theory and Action podcast. I'm so grateful for your time.
2: It's, it's my honor Karen thank you so much
1: yeah so you know I did a bit of an introduction about you before we started more of a formal introduction. I think it would be really great for listeners to hear more informally you know how you decided to write this book and and share your journey so let's just start out there how, how did yeah. this all come about?
2: Well thank you for asking you know, I have been sitting in um, in in-person and online spaces around transracial adoption for over two decades now. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point I said, I need to write a book um, before I get too old and die. And so (laughs) I decided to write the book. And one of the elements here is that every single thing that I wrote in this book I've actually said to someone. Now it's been in different contexts and different places and spaces. So no one person has ever, like if you read my book, you know, it comes from many different statements and uh, insights shared over 20 years. So they all gathered together. But this is kind of a, a piece of who I am basically.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So the one thing I can say about it um, and then people can judge whether they like it or whether it's worthwhile at all, is, is it really is organic. <laughs> it really comes out of what I've shared in transracial adoption spaces. And there was no single uh, impetus, except that I felt over time that I wanted to gather my thoughts together and share them. And it yes. really is very mission driven.
1: Yes, yeah. And tell tell us more what you mean by mission-driven.
2: Well, you know, I grew up in the 1960s and 1970s in near total whiteness. I was in, I was among the first wave of transracial international adoption, which was from South Korea. Nearly 200,000 of us were adopted out of South Korea. Yes. Uh, to the United States, To Canada to Western Europe, to Australia, and we were the tip of the spear, and it's the tip that always gets bent. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) so so we collectively had some very, very difficult and challenging experiences, and no one knew anything at the time. You know, as I say in the book, I had very deeply loving parents. They were very good parents. They had amazing emotional intelligence, especially my mother, but they literally had zero resources. There was nothing at all. Mm -hmm. There wasn't even a pamphlet, right? (laughs) And now what's wonderful is we adult transracial adoptees, both domestic and international, are creating and have been creating an entire literature uh, to support fellow adoptees, to support Uh, white transracially adoptive parents to support anyone who is connected to the transracial adoption constellation or is a part of it. But I just felt like this was kind of a book I felt needed to be written. Most of the books out there are of two types, well, maybe three types. Uh, first is just a pure personal narrative. You know, mm-hmm. Susie Smith tells about her growing up in that. Yes, there are many. There are many books like that. Yes. Second is a kind of a more. There have been some academic overviews. Some of those are not even. Have not even been written by adoptees, although a few have. And then the third type is anthologies, uh, and I've participated in four of those actually, in which adult transracial adoptees—you know—there will be twenty of us in a book, and I've I've done several of those, and I've been privileged to be a part of that. This is the first book. I just it kind of cr- created itself organically. I wanted to write conceptually, so that's most of the book, and then I wanted to make certain that. Uh, other voices were represented because I'm literally one person, right? Right. So I interviewed 13 fellow adult transracial adoptees with amazingly varied backgrounds. Um, Some are domestic, some are international. They're of all races. They come from different, they were born in different places and were raised in different places, different ages. Um, They're and very different lived experiences. That was the absolute key part. I wanted to make sure that the voices of adoptees who had experiences diverse from mine were represented to broaden out the book and to help readers. Yeah. So it's kind of a unique book Uh,
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I love the title, Extraordinary Journey, the Lifelong Path of the Transracial Adoptee, because your journey truly is extraordinary. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that from knowing you these years that I've now known you and the lifelong path because i i even think that the title is doing quite a bit of education there mm-hmm. i think some people think of adoption as a singular event that yes happens. right
2: right <laughs>
1: okay well now we did that um yeah. and so i love that title that you chose and i also for listeners, I, I want to reiterate, you are a journalist. So writing is your profession. And I think that that, um, allows you to, to come across and, In such a powerful way, because this is so well written. And since writing is
2: your craft, Um, I I appreciate that, Karen. That's very kind of, as a friend of mine would say, I'll give you 15 minutes to stop saying that. So, anyway, (laughs) but But thank you. I I do think,
1: you know, myself included, some of us end up writing a book, but we're not professional writers. And um, that doesn't mean that our books aren't good or useful or well written, but I just think your ability to write and, and bring across these points with all of your writing experiences is, is really, really helpful in this book.
2: Thank you so much, very kind.
1: In terms of what you know sets it apart from some of the other things out there. I think also um, I learned about being a polyglot from you. <laughs> <laughs> Am I saying that right? Am I yes, you are. You okay. are. Yeah. So I think that you know that you speak so many languages and that you're participating in forums, like you said, not only do you have interviews from other adopted persons, uh, people who are adopted, but you also participate in various forums on Facebook and around the world. So you bring a lot of nuance into that, which is so helpful.
2: Well, one, I'll just uh, share one little insight. Um, so yes, I am participating in Facebook forums in Spanish and Danish right now. And uh, two of the interviewees, I, I did the interviews by email because they're in Europe and partly the time difference, but I did one in Spanish and one in Danish. And of course I translated them to English for, for my readers. So the key point of that is that it is amazing. to to see both the differences and commonalities, right? So one of the adoptees I interviewed, Renee, is Bangladeshi Danish. Um, And another one, um, Luthia, is Chinese Spanish. And we've had some very different experiences and yet amazing commonalities as transracial international adoptees. So I was born in South Korea, came to the United States. Luthia was born in China, went to Spain. Rene was born in Bangladesh, went to Denmark, and yet we've had amazingly similar experiences or parallel experiences. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I think th- I think that I think that we are a separate species. <laughs> I think that transracial adoptees, we have a kind of a unique lived experience because we're people of color who were raised by white people. Um, I mean, occasionally there are people raised by other people of color of different races too, but I, I primarily speak to um, people of color raised by white people and in different places. And there's something unique about that experience that's different from POC raised by POC parents. And that that's kind of at the core of this is the race plus adoption. Um,
1: Yes, and I think that brings us to you know a large part of the reason I would have you on this podcast, the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Well, the first and most obvious thing is many therapists, clinicians who are listening to this, um, are somehow involved in adoption because you know that that can be a a theme in adoption. Um, But you know. Also, you know, just um, I think there are issues that you bring up in this book that are really relevant to just race in general and things that we have to consider as clinicians way, way beyond attachment, you know, so um, although. I think those things affect attachment because attachment is all all about feeling safe and secure with primary caregivers. Yeah, absolutely. And what I've learned from you and in your book and hearing from other people who have been adopted is these issues can affect one's feeling of safety Mm -hmm. in the family system.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you and I have talked about, we've conversed about this is, you know, I was born and then I I was in an orphanage with my twin brother uh, for eight months. And one of the reasons that we couldn't come to the United States before that at that time. So this was 1960 going into 1961 and it was four long flights, you had to change planes. And we were very, very ill in the orphanage. They weren't sure if we would live. So they couldn't put us on a plane You know, when we were that ill. And <clears throat> so I spent the first eight months of my life in an orphanage. Um, I have no conscious memory memories at all, but I'm certain that some of the things that happened Uh, because of the rupture of my uh, leaving my birth parents. And I don't know anything about my circumstances. We were told that our uh, birth mother died in childbirth, but that may or may not be true. More than half of what's in most international adoptees files is just false or incorrect. So I have no idea, literally. But in any case, I can see now, and I've, I've read in psychological literature and, you know, just having been connected with fellow adult transracial adoptees over the last 20 plus years, I see myself in them. And I know that I've had psychological challenges because of those first eight months of life, even though I have no access to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I One of the things I mention, I reference. I don't spend a lot of time talking about it, but I know that I have extreme... Fear of rejection and abandonment mm-hmm. And I have my entire Life and I'm certain that there's a Connection there but unfortunately you know I can't go back right to When I was seven months old and Figure out what was going on there I can only Speculate
1: yes Yeah 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 and I Do think that um, As a As professionals Often mm-hmm. working with people who are Adopted I feel that I can speak for myself. I've had a long way to go in terms of understanding all the layers and complexity of this. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's so many things that you, I think I'm going to out myself, you know, to some therapists that might be listening. And so many of the things that you bring up, for example, that you were, A twin. And so I think I've worked over the years with many families who will adopt another child because they want a child of that race in the family. And it looking back now, it seems like such a superficial understanding that it's almost embarrassing. But I was like, oh, yeah, that that's got to help. I mean, that that, you know, to have somebody there that looks like you and almost You know, we'll talk about the term "racial mirror" here in a minute. Right. Um, but almost as though, well, that that covers the fact
2: right, that right.
1: racial adoption, because there's just another yeah. kid there that looks like you. And I don't think I would have said that out loud. Right. But the way, I mean, I hope not. I didn't. Yeah. But it, but I do think there's a part of me that really thought, oh well, yeah, that that
2: everything was taken care of. Yeah, that's taken
1: care of. It's sort of like when I, when parents would say, well, my child doesn't want to hear about culture, doesn't want to hear about, you know, anything to do with their original language. And yeah. everyone's like, "Oh, okay, so we won't. We'll just drop that whole subject." Right, right. You <laughs> <know>? <laughs> it,
2: it. Well, and if I, if I may, Karen, you know, one of the, one of the most commonly asked questions in our Facebook groups in all languages <laughs> is, "Well." I'm thinking of adopting another, you know, my child is Asian or my child is black or my child is Latinx, and I'm just gonna adopt another one. So that'll take care of everything, right? And they use, the parents usually don't put it in that way. They don't say, it'll take care of everything. but. I was talking in one of our main facebook groups in english about this and i said that is inevitably what is subconscious right yes Uh, or subtextual right like i have one asian child if i adopt another asian child neither of them will have any issues around racial identity or isolation and what i tell people because whenever they find out i was a twin they're like so eager right they're like oh my gosh well you must have been you must have done really well. Yes. So I, yeah, right. So what I tell them is, okay, hold off. So I say, um, it did help that I had to twin, but I still ended up with all the issues that all the other adoptees did. I still ended up with a horrible uh, physical self-image. I still ended up having to go on this lifelong journey of identity like just having another child who looked like me in the family did not fix things it helped me but it didn't fix things does that make sense
1: yes and i think you are such as you said the perfect person to be speaking to this Right. because of having a twin, I think yeah. the assumptions about that would be even bigger. Yeah. Um, you know, here you yeah. are with this same age playmate who looks right. like you, you know, um,
2: and forgetting we even came from
1: the same egg. So. Yes. Yeah. For, for <laughs> forgetting that, forgetting all the rest of the environment you're being right. exposed to socioculturally. Right because often I think as white therapists and parents, we're not having a, we don't have enough of an appreciation for that to begin with.
2: Right, right. So it's easy
1: for us to think it's much more easily remedied than it is. Yeah. So the fact that you have these, you know, these very significant image problems that you write about in the book, when in some, in some Way somebody might think, well, for a transracial adoptee, this would be the best case scenario. Having right, a right, with them, right. and you're like, well, yeah, but
2: right, that's exactly it, Karen. I, I, and it's so amazing how eager the parents become when they find out I was a twin, <laughs> they're like, oh, 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 and I just have to say, hold up, <laughs> you know, there's I think a part of it is, and this is. And this kind of go cuts to the core of the racial question. And this is something that I tried to explain patiently to white parents. If you're a white person who was raised in white culture, it's very hard to understand the actual concept of racial mirroring, because you've yes. been mirrored your entire life. Like you, it's not, it's, it, it, I, I don't want to be insensitive in any, in any way, but it's a little bit like, able-bodied people trying, which I am, I'm able-bodied, to understand what it's like to grow up disabled. I think it's very difficult to even understand that, right? So most white people, I tell this one story. Can I tell you this funny story? Yes, So do. So, yeah. Five years ago, I watched a TV program. Uh, this was Anthony Bourdain, sadly, as we know, he ended his life in suicide. But when he created the Parts Unknown series, I, I love that series. It was so great. And his second episode, he went to Koreatown in Los Angeles, the new Koreatown. And he interviewed all these people. And you know, his format was he would eat in restaurants and talk to restaurateurs and stuff. Well, one of the people he interviewed was Roy Choi. So Roy Choi is um, a Korean American um, chef living in LA. And he became famous because he created kimchi based tacos. So that was like this huge Korean Mexican fusion. Anyway, Roy Choi looks like me, or I look like him rather. And I was 55 years old and it was the first time I ever saw someone who looked like me on TV. So a husky, husky, muscular uh, Korean man, with facial hair. If you think about it, 99% of the Asian men on television in sitcoms, et cetera, are very skinny, kind of geeky nerdy and usually younger also. So it blew my mind because for the first time in my life, I actually saw someone who I could identify as a a visual mirror of myself on television and I was 55. So imagine reaching the age of 55 and for the first time seeing someone on TV, which as we know, it shapes our lives, the media shapes our lives, who looks like you. Wouldn't that be mind-blowing? Yes.
1: And it's like you said that as someone who's white, we so, I've had this conversation with a lot of other white people, we so take it
2: for granted and- you know? You're mirrored in everything you do. You right. turn on the TV, you go to the grocery store, you you know, whatever. You watch a movie. There are people who look like you.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think when you have that all the time, you have a very hard time imagining how profoundly it impacts someone to not have it. It's, yeah you know, sort of like something you're so used to, you take electricity or something,
2: until right. you exactly. don't have yeah, electricity. It's, it's right. like, you're yeah, right. it's
1: just always here. Like
2: It's like running water and flush toilets.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, and then you don't realize until you don't have it, the ramifications.
2: Right, and so nearly all, you know, I, I, I try never to say all, but l- let me say the vast, vast, vast majority, of adult transracial adoptees I know who grew up in whiteness ended up with some version of the same uh, physical self-image issues. Uh, Some have it more mildly, some more severely. Mine was pretty severe. I mean, it's, it's very hard to explain what it's like just hating your appearance and being completely alienated from it and also, Many, many, many adoptees have said to me, transracial adoptees, it was so weird growing up as a child, and sometimes even now, like I would look in the mirror and go, who is that? Like, is that me? You know, they imagine they were white inside. It's not even so much you imagine you're white, but you're, you're surrounded by all white people. And then you happen to pass by a mirror and you're like, oh, wow, I'm Asian, or I'm black, or I'm Latinx, or I'm Native. And it's like, I'm not... The, the the lack of mirroring is so intense and so many of us um, have tried to change our appearances in so many ways um, it, it's it, it's just a microcosm of our broader kind of existential <laughs> challenges in the world right mm-hmm. to find a space where we feel comfortable mm-hmm And I think it's hard for people who are not transracial adoptees to understand that. And that includes other people of color sometimes to understand that. Because if they grew up in their biological family of color, at least they had that right like right. their parents and their siblings looked like them they would they would go to school even if the i know many um, i have many black parents who went to mostly white schools for example and of course they had a lack of racial mirroring at school but they would go home to black parents and siblings so yes. so i didn't have you know i had an asian sibling but again we were growing up in near total whiteness so the the It's hard to explain, but it really bends your mind in a really profound way.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Well, Mark, as usual, this discussion has already been fascinating so far. I've been sitting here, you know, recognizing that um, we're ending part one of our interview. And in one part of my mind, I'm thinking, does this need to be a series? I don't know. <laughs> but we'll
2: well, if it would, yeah, if it would help, I would be glad to. Thank OK, so but for
1: now, listeners, please come back and join us next week for part part two of this interview with Mark Heglin. He is talking about his book, The Extraordinary Journey, and there's so many concepts in here that are so important for both parents and therapists as they relate to attachment. So please join us next week.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, TKCchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to TKCchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.